Hello, Health Equity Squad. I hope you've been well. Welcome to Practicing Health Equity. I am your host and guide, Matt Kastner. In this season of Practicing Health Equity, we are exploring the question, why should we care about health equity? A journey I am calling the headwaters. The headwaters are the land where a river starts, and this question is where this podcast starts. So with that, let's begin. This week, we'll be learning about effective altruism, a modern descendant of utilitarianism, which we learned about in the last episode. To give a brief explanation of what effective altruism is, we will turn to the oversimplicator. If this is your first episode with us, the oversimplicator is a very real, not fake machine that uses only the finest cutting-edge vacuum tube technology. Using three dials, the oversimplicator creates a parallel dimension based solely on the philosophy we are considering. At the end of the episode, the oversimplicator will print out a conception of health justice based in that reality. So this week we will set the do knob to minimize, the what knob to suffering, and the who knob to group. So we're going to minimize suffering at the group level. And here we go. Hmm. So this looks kind of similar to our utilitarian reality from last time. To get a better understanding of what's going on in there, we'll be talking to two experts. First, we'll be hearing from Dr. Brian Berkey from the University of Pennsylvania. He will help us get a basic understanding of what effective altruism is and how it applies to health. Next, we will talk with Jack Luars, the president of One for the World, an organization that promotes effective giving, an approach aligned with effective altruism. Hi, Brian. Hello, my name is Brian Berkey. I am an associate professor in the legal studies and business ethics department at the Wharton School at Penn uh, and also uh, associated faculty member in the philosophy department at Penn. Awesome. And then uh, I'm wondering if maybe you could tell me a story about how you got where you are, or how you figured out that whatever you're doing is is what you want to do. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, let's see. Let's see if I can make this relatively brief. Uh, so I grew up just outside of Cleveland, Ohio. Didn't have a lot of family members who had been to college or gotten uh, a lot of education. So when I was kind of later on in high school, I had a teacher who kind of knew that I wasn't all that enthusiastic about school, uh, about high school anyway. Uh, sit me down and kind of tell me that first, if I kind of you know applied myself uh, the last couple of years of high school, I could kind of get out of Cleveland. Uh, and then later on, he told me that I should look into studying philosophy. He knew that I didn't like the kind of model of education where you just memorize a bunch of stuff for a test and uh, take the test and then forget about it. I like to think about issues and debate, do those kinds of things. And so uh, when I got to college, I started taking philosophy classes. I loved it. It's exactly what I wanted to do. Uh, and when I found out that uh, if you get into a PhD program, uh, generally they pay you uh, instead of having to go into massive debt for, say, law school. I was very much sold on uh, pursuing a career in philosophy, and that's what I did. So I, I guess here we're talking primarily about effective altruism. Uh, so I'm wondering if you could sort of introduce sort of what what is effective altruism and sort of what are what are kind of the main beliefs that that are are part of that? Yeah, so kind of at its core, effective altruism, I think, consists in two main commitments. Right. The first is trying to make the world 
a better place uh, as much as possible you know, within uh, perhaps certain kinds of constraints. One of the things that that means is using resources in ways that are expected to be maximally effective given the evidence that we have available to us. Uh, and the related commitment is to gathering and kind of analyzing evidence uh, as much as we possibly can about uh, which uses of resources will, in fact, do the most good. Just to give kind of a concrete example, imagine that you have $40,000 that you're committed to using to kind of make the world a better place. Here's one thing you could do with that $40,000. You could pay for the training of one guide dog for one blind American. That's a helpful thing to do, right? It's nice when uh, people who are blind in wealthy countries like the US have guide dogs to kind of help them with their lives. Certainly not a bad thing to do. But at the same time, that same $40,000 could provide roughly 800 surgeries for people who have trachoma, which will either prevent them from going blind or restore their sight if the effects have made them blind. So uh, with the same amount of money, you can either save 800 people roughly from blindness, or you can provide one guide dog for one blind person in the developed world. Well, as nice as it is to provide one guide dog to one blind person in the developed world, it seems like it does much more good, right? Uh, it's a much more efficient use of resources to provide the 800 trachoma surgeries. Effective altruists say that we should be thinking about those kinds of comparisons when we're making decisions about how to allocate uh, charitable resources, for example. Uh, and this really matters because the differences between how much good is done per dollar between charities often are not small, right? I mean, it's not like, you know, one charity does 10% better than another or 30% better or even, you know, twice as much good per dollar. Uh, in many cases, we're talking about orders of magnitude. We're talking about hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of times more good done per unit of resources, um, comparing the very best charities to many that are not nearly as good. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you could maybe put a finer point on sort of the idea of doing good. So like, I, I think the the kind of classic example that I've read about is like, you don't really see a lot of effective altruists, you know, donating to their metropolitan, you know, their city opera company, right? So it, like, to my reading of it, it seems kind of more uh, more concerned on aspects of goodness that have to do with suffering than than necessarily like how much enjoyment someone might get out of something. So it's kind of like, you know, we're looking at one side of the scale, maybe more than the other. Yeah. Um, so in a world that contains a great deal of pretty awful suffering, there are good moral reasons to believe, uh, these most effective altruists would say, that preventing suffering or mitigating suffering uh, is more important than uh, you know, providing people with uh, enjoyable experiences like you know, the opera or um, you know, the ballet or you know, these other kinds of things that often do take in a lot of, of charitable resources. Now, you know, that doesn't mean that uh, effective altruists necessarily think that preventing pain or suffering 
you know, takes absolute priority in every possible case, right? Uh, so presumably most effective altruists wouldn't think that if we have some very significant amount of resources and, you know, we could use those resources to put on a whole bunch of operas that thousands of people would really like, or, you know, somebody has like a modest headache, but it's going to take a huge amount of resources to, you know, cure them of their headache. Uh, you know, in that case, it might be that, you know, we should put on the operas rather than than curing somebody's headache, uh, even though the headache involves some pain and suffering. If it's modest, then uh, it can be outweighed. So, so I think another thing I'm interested in understanding is sort of where, where does effective altruism come from? Sort of like, what is its, you know, what, what, what's its origin story? Yeah, so it has its intellectual roots in a very famous paper uh, that a philosopher named Peter Singer published all the way back in 1972. Uh, the paper is called Famine, Affluence, and Morality. Uh, it's read in introductory ethics courses all over the world. And Singer argues for what, you know, at the time was considered a really surprising conclusion. Uh, I think most people still think uh, his conclusion is, is quite radical. But the view is that we are obligated to make as much sacrifice to help people anywhere in the world who are, for example, in danger of dying from easily preventable causes, as we'd be obligated to make to rescue somebody in danger that we kind of come across physically kind of in our day-to-day -day lives. So Singer discusses a case in which you come across a drowning child kind of on your way to work uh, one day. And the only way you can rescue the child is by kind of wading into the pond, right? Uh, which will ruin your, say, nice clothes that you're wearing, right? And cost you, you know, however much it costs to buy the clothes. But nobody thinks that you'd be justified in saying, well, you know, uh, I, I could rescue this child, but, you know, it's going to cost me the, the $200 that I paid for these clothes. And that's just too much to, you know, to ask uh, to save a life. Uh, Singer says, well, look, given that everyone will agree that it would be wrong not to rescue the drowning child, we should think that it's similarly wrong not to, say, donate $200 if that will save the life of somebody who would otherwise die, even if they're kind of on the other side of the world. Now, of course, Singer goes on to say, well, you know, it's not just the first $200, right? The principle that best explains why it would be wrong not to rescue the drowning child is going to imply not only that you have to give the first $200 to the charity, uh, but that you have to keep giving uh, until you would be sacrificing something of moral significance, at least by giving any more. Um, Singer's actual view is, is even more demanding than that. He thinks you have to keep giving until what you would be sacrificing is comparable to the amount of good that you would be doing. So it's a very, very radical view. Um, it basically implies that every time we spend money on uh, luxuries for ourselves, right, that we don't really need. And by luxuries, I mean, you know, everything from ordinary new clothes that you don't actually need uh, to, you know, uh, coffee at Starbucks, uh, dinner out, um, you know, a bigger apartment than you actually need. So the, the list of what counts uh, as kind of a luxury on this sort of view is quite broad. So uh, Singer's right, uh, we're obligated to to give a great deal, a great deal more than most of us are used to. So effective altruists were 
in the early days, moved by aspects of this argument to start thinking about issues like how we ought to compare the good that's done by different charities and the reasons to kind of direct charitable resources to the ones that are uh, most effective uh, rather than those that are less effective. And, you know, that's an aspect of Singer's view that kind of didn't get as much attention in the philosophical debates as just the, the kind of demandingness of what his view requires of us. Uh, so effective altruism kind of marked a little bit of a shift in the kind of emphasis in thinking about these kinds of issues to a focus on making sure that whatever resources do get allocated to charitable efforts are allocated in ways that do more good rather than less. So so are you distinguishing between Singer's earlier conception is more demanding than like the current conception of effective altruism, that it it is current day effective altruism is kind of more more concerned with the argument around efficiency than around you need to like give until you live in a cardboard box. Yes, exactly. So mm -hmm. uh, effective altruists tend not to focus that much attention on the demanding this issue, right? So if you look at, for example, uh, the Giving What We Can organization that asks people to kind of pledge to give a certain portion of their income to effective charities, the kind of standard amount that they ask people to pledge is 10% of their income, right? Uh, and, you know, that's much less demanding than what Singer's view um, in the early paper requires. And generally, even philosophers who think that effective altruism should be understood as including substantial demands on kind of well-off people to make sacrifices, uh, they tend not to think that it's kind of core to effective altruism itself that, you know, Singer's early view about just how demanding these obligations are is right. Um, uh, and so, I, I mean, I count myself in that category, right? Um, I think that effective altruism should include kind of a core commitment to um, obligations to make sacrifices, but it certainly need not be as demanding as as the view that Singer defended early on. So you would identify yourself as an effective altruist, if, if we want to put labels? Yeah, um, I consider myself committed to what I take to be the uh, the core philosophical commitments. So I think another question I have is sort of like who, like what kind of people become effective altruists? So I think it is like, even though it is perhaps less, you know, less demanding than, than Peter Singer's initial conception, you know, it is still demanding like 10%, a 10% commitment is still, that's not trivial. That's not just me giving $25 to, you know, the local humane society, whatever, and feeling good about myself. So like what, what kind of people are voluntarily signing up for this? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a fairly broad range of people who are attracted to effective altruism. I mean, I think anybody who recognizes that the world includes a lot of avoidable suffering that kind of could be addressed with greater resources you know, is going to find at least certain things about effective altruism appealing. Now, 
there's a way that some people kind of present the effect of altruism community, you know, as though it consists of, you know, kind of a bunch of, uh, you know, people in, you know, Silicon Valley who, you know, work at tech companies and kind of want to think that they're doing some good in the world and are kind of obsessed with, you know, calculations and uh, using kind of math and models to kind of figure out, uh, you know, what the, the morally best thing to do is. And, you know, I mean, of course, uh, it is true to some extent that, you know, there are more effective altruists, uh, you know, in those communities than in, in some other communities, um, you know, because people in those communities tend to have a lot of resources at their disposal, uh, I might think it's kind of a good thing that you know, a fair number of them recognize that, you know, they have a lot more than they need. And, you know, there are good moral reasons for them to kind of direct uh, a significant amount of those resources in ways that will that will help other people. Makes sense. I think one of the other things I've seen is people who are in kind of more more of those like quantitative heavy fields may gravitate towards uh, effective altruism because that's kind of woven into its DNA a bit. So maybe that's that's a good segue to maybe talk a bit about measurement. So anytime you're measuring something, particularly in the field of health, where there is a lot of you know, there can be a lot of squishiness. So I'm wondering if you can speak generally to sort of how, like, how do effective altruists think about measuring? How do, how do they go about that? What have you seen there? Yeah, so this has changed quite a bit, you know, over the last, say, 13, 14 years since kind of effective altruism got off the ground. So in the early days, the kind of gold standard among effective altruists for kind of assessing the kind of comparative uh, value of different interventions was randomized control trials. So, you know, you kind of test out something that you think might do some good, and you have a kind of control group where, you know, the intervention is is not performed, and you kind of look at the outcomes afterwards uh, and see how much good, uh, if any, uh, the kind of intervention being tested does. Uh, and then you can kind of see the idea was, uh, how much good these different possible interventions accomplish per dollar in comparison with some baseline, right? Now, of course, there are, you know, issues with uh, this way of, of doing things, right? They're confounding, you know, you have to take into account potential confounding factors. As some critics pointed out, you have to think about potential unintended side effects of various interventions that might uh, be bad, right? Uh, so, you know, the thing that you're testing, right, might look after the trial like it's, you know, like it's pretty good. But if there are, for example, um, side effect harms to people who are not the targets of the intervention, well, that needs to be kind of taken into account in kind of an overall assessment of what is done by these, these interventions. Uh, and, you know, effective altruists, um, my sense is we're pretty good about taking on board some of the criticisms that uh, were made early on and trying to kind of improve uh, ways of assessing competing interventions. It's very hard, right? Uh, and I mean, I think this was always kind of acknowledged. Um, I mean, we're dealing in areas where, um, you know, the evidence that we're able to kind of gather is always going to be partial and imperfect and even potentially misleading at times. And, you know, we need to be aware of that. We need to be willing to kind of rethink things as new evidence comes in. 
But certainly in the area of global health, which for a long time was a quite central focus of effective altruist efforts, you know, this was the model. You know, you kind of do something like a randomized control trial and you kind of assess as best you can what's accomplished by, by these different interventions. Now, uh, some recent trends in effective altruist thinking quite radically displace the position of randomized control trials in the way that issues are thought about. Uh, and this results from some of the kind of arguments that have gotten a lot of attention recently for what's called long-termism. So long-termism roughly is the view that the most important things that we can do to make the world a better place, to have the, the kind of maximal kind of expected positive value on the world uh, are going to have to do with the very long-term future. Things like uh, mitigating existential risks, that is um, uh, limiting the risk of human extinction over the next, you know, say tens of thousands of, of years, uh, so that there's a much better chance that the human species will survive for uh, perhaps millions of years. And now, of course, uh, we can't do anything like a randomized control trial on efforts to limit, often by like tiny, tiny uh, fractions of, say, 1%, the risk that humanity will go extinct in the next you know, 10 or 20 or 30,000 years. Uh, so here, there's just no place for anything like a randomized control trial, right? All we can do is kind of reflect as best we can, uh, which is, as many critics have pointed out, you know, quite limited. So that's a trend in a radically different direction from where things kind of started in the kind of global poverty, global health space. To my view, long-termism feels like it might be a bit inconsistent with some of the philosophical underpinnings of effective altruism. So for me, it was kind of like I was having a hard time reconciling, like, why is why is this part of effective altruism not something else? Like, because it is, like, I may be oversimplifying, but like, we're just using our imaginations and like, maybe it's a, maybe it's a crazy AI that kills us in a hundred thousand years. So let's, you know, let's read some sci-fi books about that. And so I don't know, like, do you, do you buy that as a part of like long-termism? Do you see that as a legitimate part of effective altruism or is that, do you see that as more of like a fringe thing? So I think it's a legitimate part of effective altruism. Okay. But I worry about how central a place it's come to hold within the effective altruism movement. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the reasons that I have this sort of concern is that um, unlike the kind of interventions focused on global poverty and global health, uh, and also the uh, kind of... Um, what had been the other main focus kind of in the early years, which was animal suffering, right? Um, reducing animal suffering. Um, it seems to me that long-termism rests on very controversial um, claims in um, what in philosophy we call population ethics, right? Um, so uh, there's just no question that there are very strong moral reasons to save the lives of people who already exist 
Right. Uh, if their lives are in danger. Uh, I think it's also at least should be uncontroversial that there are reasons to um, prevent animals from suffering in the way that a lot of animals are made to suffer uh, in things like factory farming and so on. Um, but long-termism rests on the claim that there are moral reasons to bring new people into existence so long as they would have good lives, right? Um, and that's controversial, right? There are really hard issues in population ethics um, that have to do with kind of how strong the reasons might be, if there are reasons at all, to create a person who doesn't already exist just because they would have a good life, right? Um, and uh, these issues are really hard in a way that I think, uh, you know, the commitments that are required uh, to be on board with what effective altruists were trying to do with global poverty, global health, and animal suffering um, are just, they're not that hard, right? Um, the hard issues there are things like, well, how demanding are our obligations, but not kind of whether there are moral reasons at all to, to do these kinds of things. And so, um, independent of long-termism, effective altruism can be quite ecumenical, right? Um, it can um, be grounded in a rather limited set of commitments that I think any, um, you know, morally decent person ought to accept. But it's just not true that any morally decent person has to accept that, um, you know, there are really strong moral reasons to be concerned about uh, whether people who don't exist um, but would have good lives if they did are brought into existence. Um, now, I mean, I think I think long-termism is plausible. I mean, I, I think the views in population ethics that the long-termists accept um, might be right, um, but they might not be right. Uh, and to the extent that effective altruism comes to essentially require that people be committed to these highly controversial views, um, I think that's a loss to, um, uh, to the movement. One of the things I, I wanted to help clarify is sort of like, where, where should I think about effective altruism existing like in a taxonomy? Like, is it on, is it on par with like a view, like a, a, a philosophical viewpoint, like, utilitarianism, which makes claims on what the government should do or should not do? Um, or, or is it kind of on the other end? Is it like, should I, it just be thought of as sort of this is a, a personal ethic for uh, how, how I should donate my money? Yeah, good. So effective altruism is not a comprehensive moral theory. I think virtually everyone um, kind of within the movement would agree with that. Um, so it's not in the same category as, you know, utilitarianism or Kantian ethics or, or something like that. The kind of idea is that effective altruism uh, is kind of built around a set of core commitments that are weaker than some comprehensive moral theory. Right? Uh, so I've written a little bit about this. I have a view about what those, how we should understand those core commitments. You know, whether 
effective altruism kind of makes demands on governments in addition to individuals is kind of an interesting question that I've thought less about. I suspect the answer is yes, uh, because the core commitments that seem to me kind of central to the movement uh, look like they will have some implications for how um, public officials ought to think about uh, their role also. But primarily, I think effective altruism is a view about the central philosophical commitments that ought to guide individual choice in a very non-ideal world, right? In a world where there is, uh, unfortunately, a great deal of avoidable suffering, um, disadvantage, uh, injustice, and so on that can be remedied if people in positions to affect these things make choices that are very different from the choices that we're used to making. Right. Uh, so on to health. We've talked a bit about global health, but I'm wondering if you can sort of sketch out what is the, you know, what is the overlap between effective altruism and health generally? Yeah. So, I mean, as I said, in the early days, kind of global health issues were, I would say, the most focused on area of intervention for effective altruists. So, you know, for a long time, effective altruists tended to give the majority of their charitable resources to efforts like uh, the Against Malaria Foundation, right, providing bed nets to people who are in danger of contracting and dying from malaria, mainly in poor parts of the world. Deworming treatments were big for a while. I think they're less uh, supported now because uh, newer evidence suggests that they sort of maybe do less good than um, was initially thought. But these were kind of treatments for intestinal worms that are common in certain parts of the world that for a long time, you know, these treatments were thought to improve educational outcomes and uh, lifetime incomes for people who received the treatments, uh, you know, to an extent that made the treatments kind of a really effective way of improving people's lives in the long run. Uh, you know, another thing that effective altruists um, uh, at least many of them tend to support is just direct cash transfers to people living in in severe poverty, um, and you know this is a slightly slightly more indirect way of promoting health in particular. But uh, of course, it's not surprising that many people who um, receive those transfers uh, kind of end up enjoying some uh, some improvements along important health metrics, right? And then I guess this this largely goes back to kind of our previous discussion about measurement, but how, how do effective altruists sort of identify which, you know, which health priorities are, are the right ones or which health disparities are the right ones to address? Yeah. So, I mean, there are different views on this. Um, you know, again, in the area of health, you know, there's still going to be you know, emphasis on things like randomized control trials. But, you know, we also have to kind of make some assumptions about the moral significance of different kind of things that we might achieve. So we have to figure out, you know, something like, well, what's the kind of equivalent in, you know, say, you know, educational improvement from deworming to, you know, preventing one person from suffering blindness from trachoma, right? We have to have some kind of rough way of weighing things against each other. And importantly, those decisions about kind of what relative weights to assign uh, are moral decisions. They're 
grounded in value judgments. Uh, they're not something that you can kind of arrive at through any kind of empirical study alone, right? We just have to kind of think uh, carefully about what we think matters more from a moral perspective when there are kind of competing things that we might achieve with a limited stock of resources. And so that's part of the, the challenge uh, for effective altruists, but really for anyone who cares about using resources in ways that, you know, they're the strongest moral reasons to use them. And effective altruists kind of work on these kinds of things and kind of develop you know, metrics and models, uh, but, you know, there's not kind of a settled, uh, you know, consensus about any of this. These are really hard issues and uh, there's kind of ongoing work and discussion and, and debate um, about, you know, the, this kind of range of issues. Yeah. So, so I think also going back, one of the things we'd spoken on is there's sort of an order of magnitude difference in resource efficiency generally between you know, spending a dollar in the United States versus globally. So with that sort of as as a foundation, does that preclude someone who considers himself an effective altruist from being concerned about like domestic health disparities? Or how do they, you know, how do they think about reconciling this very persuasive argument that my resources are most efficient elsewhere with the, the domestic situation? Yeah, good. So I mean, I wouldn't say anything as strong as, uh, you know, commitment to effective altruism kind of precludes concern about, you know, domestic deprivation, disparities, and so on. It is likely that a kind of fair-minded assessment of what one ought to do with one's own resources is going to favor directing them to people who are kind of on average worse off than um, most people in uh, even most poorer people in a rich country like the United States are. So, you know, one of the core commitments of effective altruism, on my view, is something that I call cosmopolitan impartiality. It basically just means that we have to kind of make our choices in light of a commitment to the equal value and equal moral importance of everyone's life and, and interests, no matter where in the world they live. Uh, so the life, the suffering of somebody really far away from me in a different country who I've never met doesn't matter any less than the suffering of somebody who happens to be, you know, a member of my own society just because they are farther away or don't share national borders with me. That seems like a really important moral commitment. It seems true to me. Um, it seems like the sort of thing that ought to play a central role in kind of guiding our decision making. And unfortunately, you know, in a world with as much suffering, injustice, deprivation, inequality as, as ours, that is likely going to mean that my resources ought to be directed um, to helping people kind of outside of my own society, because there are a lot of people who are much worse off than most people in our society elsewhere, and resources can do more good for those people. So, so I think some of that sounds like it goes back to sort of what is the scope of effective altruism. So if, if we're kind of conceiving of it as an ethical framework for considering charitable giving, someone who is an effective altruist and also cares about domestic health disparities, they might 
through their charitable giving, they might be supporting uh, some sort of bed net intervention in another country. But they might also, you know, if they care deeply about health disparities, they might be writing a letter to their congressperson or signing a petition or, you know, going door to door lobbying for supportive access to health services or something like that, right? Yeah, exactly right. Um, there's nothing, I think, that's sort of in principle inconsistent about that, um, at least unless we think that, you know, effective altruism has to be kind of maximally demanding. And, you know, instead of, uh, you know, doing these sort of political things, in addition to giving money to to global efforts, you know, people should be like, working more hours so they can donate more all the time. Um, uh, and, and so on. I don't think there's any kind of inconsistency here. And that's important for a number of reasons. Uh, I mean, one is that a person can be an effective altruist and also at the same time kind of care and kind of put time toward uh, some other things in their lives that are not just, uh, you know, the things that effective altruism recommends. Also, this kind of highlights that critics of effective altruism who worry that, you know, it's not focused enough on institutional change, uh, bringing about kind of better policies, um, political efforts, organizing, and so on. They fail to recognize, I think, that all of the things that, uh, you know, they think are most important for people to do um, are actually consistent with effective altruism. Uh, insofar as uh, you can do all of those things that they are concerned about, but also give a significant portion of your money to, you know, provide bed nets and uh, uh, direct cash transfers and, and these kinds of things. Great. Thanks for that, Brian. I think that should give us a pretty good sense of what effective altruism is. While not a one-to-one -one correlation, I think effective altruism finds a majority of its roots in the field of utilitarianism. Next, we'll turn our conversation to Jack Loire's to get a more practical perspective on how some of those principles are put into action through effective giving, a first cousin of effective altruism. Hi, I'm Jack Lewis. I'm the executive director at One for the World, and I'm a career executive within the charitable sector. So I co-founded a charity out of university and led that for eight years, and now I lead One for the World. Yeah, so let's, uh, let's maybe get into that. I'm, I'm wondering if you could tell me a story about sort of how how did you get where you are? How did you find out this was sort of what you wanted to do with your life? So when I was at university, I interned at a couple of very large charities, cancer research charity and a big educational charity. And I was a little disturbed by some of the things that I saw there. It seemed to me like the working culture was very relaxed. It didn't seemed to be driving a high performance environment and I was also quite interested I guess to see that the CEOs of these organizations were career financial services professionals bankers really who had just been hired as a parachute to retirement because they had a really good fundraising contact book and everything about that struck me as pretty unfortunate because if you're working on a really big problem and you're trying to do something as monumental as curing cancer, I think you should have a high performance environment. And I think you should have people leading the organization where this is the defining thing they do in their life, not a part-time job that they do on their way to retirement. 
And so I decided that I wanted to work in the charitable sector. But when I graduated from university, I didn't get into any of the very large corporate style charities, I guess, possibly, I think there were probably lots of reasons, but possibly because of the views that I've just aired to you, at least in part. And so I ended up joining forces with someone who already had a charitable program, a guy called Ken Cowan that used rugby to help unemployed people to get a job. And we've co-founded a charity together and then tried to run it in line with the principles that I've just mentioned. Okay. And then I guess thinking personally, like, is there anything you would point to that sort of led you to, you know, not just working in charities, but, but really kind of being impact driven as opposed to like, I don't know, doing, doing something completely different or, or this is just, you know, this has always been the way it is for you. Yeah, I have this very strong moral belief that if you benefit from a lot of privilege in your life, you should try to use that to do something that makes the world better, particularly for people who haven't benefited from that level of privilege. And I think when people hear that, they probably think, oh, he must have been born a millionaire from an aristocratic family with rolling estates and herds of proprietary cattle and so on and so forth. But but what I really mean by that is just growing up in a household where both parents were around there weren't any substance abuse or domestic violence issues. We had enough money that we could put food on the table and heat the house and didn't have to make a choice between those things. And don't get me wrong, I lived a pretty comfortable life as a kid because my parents are both professionals. My dad's a doctor and my mum was a teacher. But I don't think you need to come from this world of extraordinary succession-style privilege in order to think that you actually got really lucky with where you were born. And so I believe that if you benefit from those things, you have a positive duty to try to help people who haven't benefited from those things just because of the accident of birth. Got it. Um Okay, so I guess moving the spotlight a little bit. So you you currently work for One for the World. I'm wondering if you could tell us sort of what is what is that organization? What what do they do? How did you kind of come into that position? Yes, yeah, so One for the World is trying to build a world where everybody embraces their opportunity to give effectively, and as a result of that, no one has to live in extreme poverty. And so our mission is to build a movement of people revolutionising charitable giving to end extreme poverty. And we do that through education, training and community building. And what that means in practice is we try to answer two questions for people. How much should I give and where should I give it? And we believe that you should give to highly cost effective organisations who you know are going to do a really good job with that donation and actually produce measurable, consistent change in the problem that they're trying to address. And we think you should give at least 1% of your income because if you give 1% of your income, your material quality of life will stay exactly the same. But that is enough that in the hands of very cost-effective charities, they'll be able to do a lot of good with it. Now, in terms of how I came to One for the World, I had run um, the School of Hard Knocks, the charity that I mentioned earlier, which I um, helped to establish with Ken Cowan for eight years And so I was the chief operating officer there. I had worked there for the whole of my 20s. And I felt like I was ready to step up and lead an organisation on my own. And at that point, having done effective giving myself for nearly 10 years, 
I was really interested in moving into that space. And then the job with One for the World came up and it was sort of a perfect match because they were looking for someone who could come in and be the first executive director. Up until then, the organisation had been run by volunteers and they wanted someone who could come in, take over and grow it. And I had come out of an organisation that I had grown significantly from just the two of us to reach around um, a thousand people a year with the services in around five different countries uh, and we built up a staff team of I think about 20 to 30 people so I had the experience they were looking for. Yeah so to maybe get into that in some more depth so I think two of the main things you mentioned are community building and education what is that I mean those are not easy things how do you do that on like a day-to-day or week-to-week basis what is that what does that look like for you all? Yeah so the education piece is about trying to raise people's awareness of two things. First of all how severe extreme poverty is. So it might surprise your listeners to know that living in extreme poverty means that you consume less than $1.90 of resources per day. Now if any of your listeners actually thought about trying to live tomorrow on less than $1.90 they would just give up straight away because it's it's absurd. There's no possible way to do it. You know you you probably spend more than $1.90 pro rata just on your internet connection let alone on food and heating and having somewhere to live and transport and everything else and yet that is what nearly 800 million people in the world have to do every single day and so they make these impossible choices between food and medicine and healthcare and education and trying to improve their economic circumstances and so on and so forth so that's the first education piece and the second piece is saying but there are non-profits who can make a measurable dent in this thing it's not an inevitable fact of life that we have to live with people in fact i think you can go further and say it's a damning indictment of modern society that anyone lives in those circumstances it's completely unnecessary not just unacceptable but also completely unnecessary And so we try to educate people about those two things. Now, the specifics of how we do that are it's either a member of staff going out and speaking to people about it, like I am doing now. And I do a lot of outreach with corporations, with people who work at big companies who have the means to give. Or uh, we have a, a big part of our operations is training volunteers on university campuses to go and do this education piece. Uh, And so um, we have a whole staff team who work with very exceptional inspiring student volunteers to give them the tools necessary to go out and advocate to their peers to recruit other people into this movement that we're trying to build and then finally you mentioned community building well the truth is it's not enough just to go to people and say hey extreme poverty is a massive problem why don't you give me some money because they'll probably say no Uh, and there's a lot of demands on people's money and time So we believe you have to build community around this. So you have to connect people who care about this, who are prepared to take a costly action, like giving money every month for the rest of their careers. And you need to connect them together and help them to to build community and to build a movement. And so we do that through connecting our members to each other, through having meetups, through having these university campuses where people can be part of a club while they're studying, through having these companies we work at where people can be part of a club around their work and just generally trying to build over time more and more people who are actually engaged in this fight to end extreme poverty, who don't just look at this massive problem and say, well, it's too big to take on, but actually do something concrete to try to make sure that in 20 years there isn't anybody living in these appalling circumstances. Yeah. So I guess in your in your time doing this, like what what kind of people sort of get on board for this? What, what do they look like as a group? Not like physically, but... (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah, we only picked the really good looking ones. As you can tell, yeah. It's a good thing this is an audio medium. Um, they tend to have some things in common. They tend to be reasonably analytical because the approach that we take to finding nonprofits that our members donate to is highly analytical. You need to have very strong scientific evidence that what you're doing, or scientific style evidence anyway, that what you're doing really works. You need to be extremely cost effective. And we're not interested in marketing gimmicks like claiming that every part of the operation costs $5 because it looks good on a subway poster, which is what a lot of nonprofits do. We want to know what it actually costs. And that includes all the messy stuff like overheads and IT and leadership and fundraising. You know, we want to know what it actually costs to run this organization and then how that divides between all the activities that they do. So they tend to be very analytical. They also tend to have what we call a broad moral circle. So this is a bit of moral philosophy, I guess, but most people think that their moral responsibilities extend to their family, their friends, and maybe some form of community. So that might be their faith group or the literally the local community that they live in, or maybe a community of people who they have some shared characteristic with that they then feel connection to. I, you know, I guess another example might be political affiliation, for example. But we believe that the life of a person is worth the same as the life of another person, irrespective of where they live, what their political leanings are, what their gender is, what their sexual orientation is, etc., etc. That across all of these things, until you have some reasonable basis for distinguishing between two people in terms of how much they should be helped, you should assume that everybody's life is worth the same. And that leads you to have a very broad moral circle because that leads you to say things that might be counterintuitive, like the death of a child under five in sub-Saharan Africa is as big a tragedy as the death of a child under five who lives on my street. And actually, I think when you think about it, that kind of is obviously true. It is obviously morally awful when that happens anywhere. It doesn't matter whether they happen to live next door to you or on the next street over in the same state or the same country. But it's not an intuitive moral position. And so that's another thing that they have in common. And then I guess the third thing they have in common, our members, is the desire to do something about this in a, in a meaningful way. And donating 1% of your income is not going to take you from living an affluent, comfortable life and make you a pauper. But it isn't nothing. It might mean making some small sacrifice in your life. And so the people who take our pledge are prepared to do that, which I think is admirable. So I guess one of the things I'm interested in is sort of how how people come to sort of their their moral position or their moral view. I'm, I'm imagining, you know, you're setting up a table at a college campus somewhere, or maybe it's, you know, an internet table that people are coming up to on the internet. I don't know. But when you're thinking about that, are you thinking about like, you know, we are trying to find people who sort of fit fit this framework that, that sort of ha- that are analytical, that sort of have an intuitive sense that, you know, pe- people are people wherever they are. Or is there like, you know, an aspect to it of persuasion of trying to persuade people to this point of view? So sort of like what's what's the balance or, or you know, any anyone who comes up to the metaphorical table is is an opportunity to get someone on the bus. Everyone who comes up to the table is an opportunity, but not all opportunities are equal. So I do think a lot of what we do is find people who are predisposed to agree with us and show them a really concrete, meaningful way they can take action. At the same time, I think you can use storytelling and 
thought experiments to help people realize that maybe they think something they didn't realize they already thought. So for example, I don't think if you surveyed a thousand people on campus that many of them would agree with the statement, the death of a child under five in Senegal matters as much as the death of a child under five in the US. I don't actually know that, that, but I just guess if you look at the actions of people, almost all US philanthropy is based within the US. So I assume implicitly people think this. But maybe when you put it to them in those terms, they re-examine that assumption. And if you like, I can give you an analogy that we use to do this sometimes, which is the drowning child thought experiment uh, popularized by Peter Singer, which says if you're walking through a park and in the middle of the park there's a pond and in the middle of the pond there's a child struggling to stay above the water, would you jump in and try to save the child from drowning? And the answer is yes. And you can easily build on that experiment by saying, would it matter to you whether they lived in the same place as you? Well, no, you'd still jump in. You wouldn't ask for their zip code before you jump in and try and help them. Well, would it matter if they were the same race as you or not? Well, no, obviously not. In fact, it'd be completely appalling if you try to ascertain their race before deciding whether to help them and so on and so forth. And so you can kind of build these analogies to just say, well, in that case, it shouldn't matter to you whether this is a child under five in your neighborhood or a child under five in a neighborhood you've never been to on the other side of the world, the moral value is the same. So I think you can do both, although a lot of the time I think the majority of people we sign up probably have some agreement with us already. Interesting. I guess to maybe take a step back from this, so I guess we've talked about a couple terms, we've talked about effective altruism and effective giving. I'm wondering if you can sort of, from from your perspective, give an idea of sort of what are what are those terms and how are they similar or different? Yes, yeah, so effective giving is something that One for the World identifies with very strongly, and that is simply the attempt to try to give money to very cost-effective causes. So you try to find causes where they're very large in scale. So if you were to move the needle on them, it would make a big difference to a very large number of people or animals. You Try to look for things which are tractable. That is, there's something we can actually do about it with more funding. Because if you're working on something where there's just no clear route to progress on it, it's unlikely that your donation will be cost effective. Although there are some exceptions to that. And then you look for something that's neglected so it doesn't already have loads of money. So there's room for your money to make a difference. So, for example, it's probably a pretty bad idea as an individual to donate to the endowment fund of Stanford University, because I think last time I checked, it was about $29 billion. So what's your donation going to achieve? Even if you think Stanford's doing an amazingly effective job and that that's a massive large-scale problem that affects lots of people, which I think it pretty self-evidently isn't, and you think it's really tractable for your donation to improve massively the quality of education at Stanford, that money is just a complete waste of money. You should never, ever donate to the endowment fund of an Ivy League university. It's pointless. And so we're looking for things that perform really well across those three things. And that's what effective giving is. And I guess also the point is obviously not just to do the research, it's to actually give some money. Effective altruism is a much broader collection of people, I guess that you could call it a movement, that aims to figure out what's the most good you can do with a unit of resources and then take action on that basis. 
But that can have loads of different forms. So that might be thinking about the unit of resources might be your time. So what are you going to do with your volunteer time that will do the most good? And then you take action on that basis. Or it might be what do you do with your working time, with your career? So are you prepared to change jobs in order to do something more impactful than you're doing at the moment? Or it could be money, but it could also be in the pursuit of that kind of inquiry into what the most good you can do with the unit of resources is you might do research into different possibilities to do that, which is what they call cause prioritization. So you might say, is it more effective for me to put my time into trying to combat climate change or trying to prevent the next pandemic? And then you can do whole bodies of research into how you might weigh those questions. So that's just this much broader thing. And effective altruism to begin with was a lot about giving, but it's less about giving now. It has become much more about the way you use your time. And so One for the World doesn't consider itself an effective altruist organisation. But obviously, effective giving is something that has a history with effective altruism. And that is something we're very deeply engaged in. Thank you for talking through that. I think if I'm if I'm understanding it, if we're trying to like draw the Venn diagram for effective altruism and effective giving, like is effective giving like within effective altruism? Is it next to like, what's the overlap there, would you say, conceptually? It's, it's a good question. It's probably spanning the boundary from being within and without because a lot of people who are effective altruists do effective giving. And I personally think if you are an effective altruist, you should be giving something as long as you have disposable income and live in a high-income country. And last time I checked, that's basically everyone in effective altruism, from what I can tell. But you don't have to subscribe to the ideas of effective altruism to do effective giving. You don't have to be a, a maximalist who's trying to do the most good with the resources they have. You might just choose to make a an affordable donation each month to very effective charities. You might be attracted to the charities that happen to be cost-effective for completely non-evidence-based reasons. It might be that you just really care about vitamin A deficiency in Senegal or malaria in the Democratic Republic of Congo because of some connection to it. So there are definitely people in effective giving, and particularly, I think, in One for the World's membership who are not effective altruists. But it is true that a lot of effective altruists do effective giving. And then I think one thing that I I have understood to be important within effective altruism is sort of uh, the the idea of measurement. Uh, you know, so trying to get everything to some sort of return on investment, which I think can sometimes be complicated. And I think one of the the pillars you had spoken to in you know what one for the world does is you were trying to push people towards these effective charities. I'm wondering if you, if to some extent you turn that that lens of measurement and ROI on like the work that you're doing. So like, are you when you're sending people out into the field to try to uh, you know evangelize for effective giving? Are you are you saying like, well, we're spending X on, uh, you know, on this outreach and education, and we're seeing X times twenty in terms of pledges? Like, are are you looking at anything like that? Yes, we are. And that is the key driving principle of how we try to think about our strategy. And I spoke right at the beginning about being, frankly, quite frustrated by my experience in some very large corporate-style charities. And one of the ways to avoid that is to be really data-driven. That's a key value of ours, um, is to be data-driven. So we start every all-hands meeting with a look at an OKRs dashboard, that's uh, objectives and key results, that shows the numbers 
behind the things that we're trying to do, which is broadly speaking, just move a lot more money to these nonprofits. So we are very data driven in that regard. Like a lot of, I guess like you hinted at, it's not always easy to measure things that might be a bit more ambitious or complicated. And in our case, the big uncertainty is when we train a volunteer to go to talk to someone on their campus today, how does that play out over the next ultimately 20 years, even 30 years of their career? And that does involve uncertainty. So it's not perfect. It's not a perfectly measurable environment. And so occasionally we have to do stuff where we're really doing it because we've made an assumption and we're kind of backing that assumption. But then we look for signal where we can see it of, okay, you know, we tried this particular outreach strategy and it didn't go so well. And we tried this one and it seemed to go better. And this is behind our, our real pivot into community building in a big way is we felt we'd become too transactional in our outreach that we were just asking people for money and that wasn't building enough connection between them and the nonprofits that we're here to support. So we're now trying to build much more sense of belonging around being part of this movement. Got it. And then I think kind of the last the, the last major concept I would bring up that I've I've kind of tried to grapple with in terms of effective altruism or effective giving is um, so, so I guess with the podcast, I have kind of in conceptualizing it, I sort of drew a line around the United States and I care about health disparities and health equity in the United States. Um, and I think that is a decision that has been challenged in some of the conversations I've had with people. I think particularly this one, I, I think one of the things that effective altruism or effective giving does is it highlights kind of the, the abject horror of, you know, five-year-olds dying in Senegal as opposed to on my street. So I guess that that is the background to sort of ask the question is sort of how, how does someone who sort of follows this kind of radically equal worldview how, how does one think about sort of domestic issues versus you know the the kind of order of magnitude difference of quality of life internationally uh, you know so kind of what, one way to interpret that is to to maybe completely you know there there are so many issues over here we shouldn't be concerned you know all of our resources should be going over there i don't know that that's the right answer either so how what are your thoughts on sort of you know, what, what is, you know, what legitimacy do, do domestic issues have that are, you know, potentially smaller magnitude when weighed against, you know, very significant issues elsewhere, potentially? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it partly depends what type of action you're thinking about taking. So when it comes to just caring, I care about health disparities in high income countries. I care about that. I care about health disparities in the UK where I'm from. I care about health disparities in Germany where I live. I care about health disparities in the US, which I visit frequently for work and where many of my friends and colleagues live. So there's no real reason why you couldn't care deeply about all of those things. But obviously some resources are more finite than that. And I think when it comes to money in particular, and that's your own money as an individual, I don't really know where you would put your money to seriously address health disparities in the US healthcare system. So let me give you a, like a, a plausible straw man. So I could maybe set up a US focused charity that gives uh, free or affordable housing to people who have, you know, severe medical conditions. There's kind of a, a rich pathway of 
low quality housing to asthma to other chronic conditions. So let's let's get high quality housing for people. Yeah, so that seems like a good thing to do. It seems likely that it will take a lot of resources to do that well. So my guess is, let's just say it costs $100,000 to provide a house for someone or for a family. So you're talking about around $25,000 per person. Let's just assume it's a four-person family who's going to benefit from that. And this is where, on the margin, you have to make some choices because that $25,000 would avert five deaths. So it wouldn't just improve the lives of five people. It would be enough that you should be confident that if you spend it on anti-malarial bed nets, five people who were going to die will no longer die because of five of the bed nets that you funded that prevented them from getting malaria. And so it's hard to see really when it comes to a question of where you put your money, why you would prioritize just spending like a bunch more to get an outcome that is good it's still good but it's not i think as significant as someone not dying from malaria now the the problem of course is when you follow this to its logical conclusion it leads you to dramatically reprioritize and it might lead you to a position where the only thing you do domestically is vote and volunteer but that's okay, you see. I, that, that's kind of what I do. Like, I don't do any charitable donations that operate within high-income countries except one, which is I give to a homelessness charity because I felt the deep emotional impact of seeing homeless people every day who were struggling, and I wanted to try and give to an organisation that would alleviate that. But I kind of do that as a an emotional crutch, not because I think that money is especially well spent. But almost all of my giving is done overseas. But then I still volunteer locally and I still vote and I still am engaged in politics and will sign petitions and all the other things. I mean, I can't sign a petition, but I don't think that's going to help someone who might get malaria. I also definitely can't volunteer. I definitely, definitely shouldn't be flown to an African country to go around doling out bed nets. That is incredibly inefficient. So, yeah, I think there are different types of action you can take. Well, think think about all the all the likes you would get on Facebook, though, if you did that. Yes, but then I'd have to live with myself afterwards, and so you have to weigh the adulation I would get from my Facebook friends versus my own deep sense of disappointment in myself. Uh, there we go. So, so I think the last topic I would pick up. I, I'm wondering if you could talk through the the intersection between the work one for the world does with health like what are what are maybe some of the charities that that you all point people towards yes so when you follow this idea of cost effectiveness you basically end up in a pretty narrow range of cause areas so broadly speaking you either end up in climate lobbying and emergent technologies so trying to support things like carbon capture or um, retrofitting coal power plants to run on clean energy instead or trying to change energy policy In animal welfare, so trying to improve the just desperate conditions in which farmed animals are kept. In existential risk, so trying to do things like prevent the next pandemic being so bad so that it doesn't wipe out the whole of humanity. Or in global health. That's the original cause area that people found that offers just unbelievable cost effectiveness. 
And the reason for that is that in high income countries, we benefit all the time from things that cost almost nothing. And in other countries, people die for a lack of those things and they cost almost nothing. So the charities that we recommend at the moment are two in malaria treatment and prevention. That's the Against Malaria Foundation and Malaria Consortium. The Against Malaria Foundation can purchase and distribute a bed net coated in insecticide to someone in a malarial area for just over $5. And if you buy roughly a thousand of those and distribute them in an area that's prone to malaria, someone who was going to get malaria and ultimately die won't because of the protection afforded by that bed net. In the case of Malaria Consortium, they give out anti-malarial drugs as a preventative. It costs about $7 um, to do that. And if you give it out before the malaria season, people who've received those will not get so sick if they get malaria and so are much less likely to be hospitalised or die. And in the same way, it costs about $5,000 to avert a death through Malaria Consortium. And then the other two we support at the moment are Helen Keller International, who distribute vitamin A supplements. Uh, vitamin A deficiency not only can have severe consequences itself, it can cause um, people to go blind and even to die. It also, um, a lack of vitamin A uh, undermines your immune system and so makes you much more prone to, I guess, common infections um, like colds and coughs and so on, but also to very severe ones like pneumonia. And so around 200,000 children under the age of five die every year because their diets were not rich in vitamin A. And it just takes a supplement that costs about a dollar twice a year in order to combat vitamin A deficiency. And then finally, we now direct money to a nonprofit called New Incentives. In northwestern Nigeria, you have some of the lowest vaccination rates in the world, and we know that vaccines work. And what New Incentives does is offer caregivers a small amount of money to incentivize them to bring their children to be vaccinated, and then a larger amount of money if they complete the vaccination profile for their child. And this is important in two ways. First of all, because sometimes there are costs to going to get your child vaccinated. For example, you have to take half a day off work or you have to catch a bus that costs money. So you just want to make sure people aren't unable to afford to do that. And then also, in some cases, it provides an incentive for people to go and get their kids vaccinated because maybe they're apathetic or even sceptical of vaccines or, you know, don't um, fully understand or don't believe in the good that they will do. And so... This has just proved remarkably effective at getting childhood vaccination rates up. And that has incredible knock-on effects at combating a whole host of, of diseases. And so these are all examples of incredibly lean organisations. You know, the highest unit cost here is the full vaccination profile for a child costs about $180. But half of that is covered by the government. So in actuality, it costs about half that. And the lowest unit cost is about a dollar per dose for vitamin A supplements. And yet these are really, really severe problems. They're lethal problems that kill roughly 15,000 children under the age of five every day. And so by just donating a small amount of money, you can help to avert those deaths. And that's an opportunity you just won't find very often in the charitable sector. And I should just say as, as an addition, 
loads of people who do charitable marketing will tell you a pretty good story about how $5 buys clean water for someone for a month or whatever it is. It's almost all nonsense. I mean, these are just marketing gimmicks. They squint a bit and find a round number. It's always convenient, I think, that the buy-ins are 5 10 and $15, um, shockingly. Uh, and they just find this number that sounds good and then put something on it. But, but they'll be squinting or it might be true in one place and not in another or they'll be um, excluding overheads or um, they could do it like that for a bit, but it wouldn't scale. But these are number, the, these, uh, the analysis that we rely on from GiveWell, which is one of the leading charity evaluators in the world, is so rigorous and it's, reconduct, you know, it's reviewed um, every couple of years. Um, with a real deep dive into the finances of the organisation and how good the outcomes are and so on and so forth. It's just much more reliable than the stuff you're going to read in general from charities about how they operate. Well, I guess I, I do want to, if um, if someone is is moved by this to get involved, what, what would be a good way for them to, to learn more about your organisation? Yes, so you should visit our website, which is oneforTheworld.org, but the number one is spelt with an actual numeral, so the number one for the world.org. And you can find out more there and you can even make a donation or take the one percent pledge. There's a button that says take the pledge in the top right. And you can also follow us on Instagram, and our Instagram handle is at one for the world, also with the number one. And then you can keep abreast of news and promote our content and try to get other people to come and find out about this. And we really would love you to get involved. I should also say, if you work at a large company or you're a student at a university, you could even set up a chapter and then maybe you'd convince 10 or 50 or 100 other people to join this movement. And that's an incredible thing to do with your time. So we'd love you to get more involved. Awesome. Um, I guess any other closing thoughts on... Effective giving, one for the world. Yeah, I guess you mentioned the idea of measurability earlier. And one thing people may be thinking when they hear this is, oh, well, that's all very well. But the thing I really care about is so hard to measure that it's just such an obviously good thing. You know, I'm not prepared to give that up. And the first thing I should say is you definitely shouldn't give it up. We're not trying to tell you to stop all your other philanthropy and just start doing our form of philanthropy. There are lots of different forms of good in the world and Many organizations are not suitable for the type of measurement that we focus in on. So just because they're not recommended by us, it doesn't mean they're doing a bad job. But also on this measurability thing, I agree that there are lots of different things that are hard to measure. But I don't think that that's a reason to say, therefore, we should just give up on the project of trying to measure what actually works entirely. Yes, it's imperfect when we do this measurement, but the alternative world is probably the one we actually live in where charitable giving is just done in this completely insane way where i think in the us 470 billion dollars was given to charity in the last year that we have numbers for and almost all of it made absolutely no difference at all to the thing we were trying to improve and so sometimes i think people focus in on the difficulties of measuring this stuff as a way of rejecting the premise entirely but I think that's that's really misguided because I started this podcast by talking about being on the inside of some very large charities with very slick fundraising operations and I'm telling you you shouldn't put your money there because it's not going to do any good to the thing you're trying to help so yeah by all means join the debate about whether we're missing something whether there are things that we've overlooked 
whether there are other areas where you can get amazing cost effectiveness. There's new there's new suggestions for this all the time that are really exciting. But please don't be tempted to say, because this is difficult, I'm simply going to just give based on the fact that my friend founded this nonprofit, therefore it must be good. Yeah. I think the number you said for this, the United States was 420 billion. Do you think about this in terms of like, well, if we can, you know, move the needle from, you know, this much is 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 effective giving to this much is effective giving, like, do you have a sense of like what the global impact of that would be? Or, I mean, a lot, I would guess. <laughs> yeah, it'd be a lot. So I these figures are unbelievably rough. They're so rough, I probably shouldn't say them on the podcast. But on the back of a stained napkin, I did some calculations about US char- um, charitable giving. And I reckon that a maximum of 1% of it was spent really effectively. So a maximum of about $4.5 billion. So if we could get that up to 2%, you would see very, very profound changes. And... There are examples of huge wins in this area. So maybe let me finish with some hope. We have seen moves to ban caged uh, chickens in the EU that are likely to come to fruition that will improve the lives of chickens that are kept in just the most appalling conditions immeasurably. And we are talking about billions of animals here. And that came because people donated to an effective charity that was able to lobby successfully to make these changes. We will in our lifetime, I think, see the eradication of malaria. We've already seen wild polio all but eradicated. Um, We've already seen smallpox effectively completely eradicated. And these things are within reach right now. And so, yes, if we could take even the giving in the US alone, let alone globally, and make it 10% more effective or make even 1% of it highly effective, you would just see these enormous changes. And, And it's funny, I guess smallpox is a great example. How many of your listeners worry about smallpox? My guess is not very many, but that's because around 60 years ago, there was an all-court press to try and eradicate smallpox, actually, very interestingly, involving the Soviet Union and the US, who were not the best of friends in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and they did it. And I think I saw an estimate that a billion lives have been saved by that effort. So this, 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 these are the stakes. We can do an unbelievable amount of good if we just try to do philanthropy in a smarter way. Well, I think we'll end on that high note. Thanks so much, Jack. Now that we've talked with Brian and Jack, let's see what the oversimplicator prints out. Health justice in an effective altruist world seeks to avoid the most measurable suffering per dollar of resources, regardless of who is suffering. Moving on to our robust practical understanding of health equity. You heard a bit of this in my conversation with Jack, but one of the things I think sets effective altruism apart is that it really implicates the individual. Some of the other frameworks seem to allow a reader or podcast listener or an adherent to simply have a belief about what the world should or shouldn't be, while effective altruism has an inherent bias for action. It argues that you, yes, you, actually you, yes, you, sitting there in the car with the white car passing you on the left. That should be at least one of you, and if it's not, please play this episode back the next time you're driving somewhere. Effective altruism does not necessarily wait for the long deliberative process of policy. It tries to drive evidence-based action now because the clock is ticking and people are suffering. 
I think this implication of the individual is a definite thread of our robust practical definition of health equity. We'll pick up this theme again when we talk about liberation theology in a later episode. And much of this implication forces an individual to consider how effective they are being. It's not enough to do something. Effective altruism demands that we do the right thing, and that relies on measurement. This, I think, is another concept that shares with utilitarianism, the importance of measuring how effective a course of action is. And while the mechanics of effective altruism and effective giving themselves direct attention away from American health disparities, I think the importance of being effective within an American context is a core piece of a robust, practical conception of health equity as well. This was a bit of a longer episode, so I'll end my ramblings here. If you're interested in learning more about effective altruism, there is no shortage of books on the subject. The one I'd recommend as a starting point is Peter Singer's The Most Good You Can Do. To end this episode on a less serious note, we are going to revisit Philosophy is a Joke featuring Google Bard, where I ask Google Bard, the large language model AI, to make up a joke about the subject of the episode. Google Bard is a can't-miss comedian because the joke is either really good or the joke is really bad, and then Google Bard has to explain why it's funny. And as I always say, the best jokes are the ones you have to explain. So here is Google Bard's joke about effective altruism. What do you call an effective altruist who is always trying to find the most efficient way to do good? A spreadsheet enthusiast. This joke is funny because it plays on the stereotype that effective altruists are very analytical and data-driven. It also suggests that effective altruists are always looking for ways to do the most good with the resources they have, even if it means using spreadsheets. So that's it. Join the conversation on Twitter at Practice Inequity. That's Practice In without the G because we like to keep it casual. And subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. If you have a question, comment, or correction for me, email practicinghealthequity at gmail.com. Last but not least, tell all your public health nerd friends to tune in and subscribe. Take care. Tune in next time for an episode about libertarianism. And here's a brief preview. This is a bobblehead of Elizabeth Warren. So I, I think Elizabeth Warren is wrong about everything in healthcare. Like crazy wild wrong.